Welcome to Major Figures in Spanish Culture, a podcast produced by Fundación Juan Marc. In each episode, we invite renowned experts to sit down and share stories about some of Spain's most distinguished figures who have greatly influenced and contributed to the advancement and richness of Spanish culture. Don Quixote is one of the world's greatest literary masterpieces and is considered by some the first modern novel. It was written in the early 1600s by Miguel de Cervantes, the most important and celebrated figure in Spanish literature. Cervantes' profound curiosity led him to engage in a rich life as a soldier and a civil servant and in a wide array of disciplines, which nurtured the talents of this greatly acclaimed novelist we celebrate today. Susan Byrne, professor of Hispanic Studies and chair of the Department of World Languages and Cultures at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, is here to tell us more. Miguel de Cervantes' daring in literary experimentation was both perfectly suited to the time in which he lived and an exponential step forward in literary art, specifically in the genre he perfected, the modern novel. Francisco Rico has called the Renaissance the artistic flowering of humanism. That pedagogical and philosophical shift in perspectives did stimulate changes in intellectual self-consciousness and in literary expression. Cervantes is an extraordinary example of that Renaissance blossoming in the creative arts, but the game-changing nature of his writings is due in large part to his serious engagement with other disciplines. The later separation of history, law, theology, philosophy, literature into distinctive spheres of activity has blurred their former interconnectedness. And Cervantes' renowned realism has deep roots in his groundbreaking appropriation of multiple factors from that interdisciplinary environment. Prior to 1550 in Spain, all writing in prose was called good letters, buenas letras, good letters in history, good letters in philosophy, good letters of entertainment, etc. From that point forward, prose writings began to be separated into good letters or human letters, depending on their disciplinary focus. The descriptor good letters took on a discrete meaning related to legal writings, while human letters incorporated philosophies of life and of poetics, including what we think of today as creative letters or literature. Lope de Vega briefly tested out the phrase polished letters for this category, but it did not gain traction. Thirty years later, the French coined the phrase beautiful letters, belle lettre, which would become the preferred nomenclature for describing creative letters going forward, although it would not have its first use in Spanish until the beginning of the 18th century. Prior to that, in 1672, Spanish bibliographer Nicolás Antonio classified most of Cervantes' novels, along with many others by his contemporaries, as poetic prose. This category recognizes their combination of invention and imagination, the supposed purviews of poetry, in a non-metered form, prose. Later centuries, the 18th and 19th, brought general acceptance of the term literature, and with that, the creative writings of earlier periods began to be so designated. This full process of reclassification from good 
to human, to beautiful letters, then to literature, led to a crucial loss, and that novels like those of Cervantes were distanced from their roots in the interdisciplinary good and human letters of the Renaissance. To recover the nuance in his novels and to better appreciate his artistry in its design and realization, it is essential to read those novels in and as part of that full environment. An identical, historically contextualized philology was practiced in the 16th century by Italian humanist Andrea Alciato, who argued that the laws of 6th century Emperor Justinian could only be truly understood in the light of other writings from his day, historical, philosophical, and literary. Each discipline informed the others, and the laws could not be properly interpreted without conversant knowledge of writings in those other disciplines. Similarly, volumes on law, history, and philosophy are decisive for an informed understanding of the novels of Cervantes, who weaves multiple conceptual threads of socio-historical aspects of his life and times into formal structures that masterfully exploit Aristotelian rhetorical maxims for inventio, elocutio, and dispositio. Trenchant examples of elocutio serve as tropes to signal inventio, which is then fully fleshed out in dispositio, and this lexical tropism takes the form of words highlighted in unexpected ways or used repeatedly within a few lines of text to serve as keys to that deeper layer of messaging. Don Quixote, for example, is a novel rife with glosses on legal matters. This history, as Cervantes calls it, is also a fictional reenacting of topical juridical debates on approaches to law. In the first part of the novel, protagonist Don Quixote highlights that the goal of all human letters is to assure distributive justice and that laws are followed. He ratifies this in the second part of the novel, saying that a knight-errant must be a jurist who understands distributive and commutative justice in order to give to each his own. In both cases, Cervantes states in literal terms a commonplace of classical authorities about the need for moral ends in written texts. But he adapts the maxim to insist that a particular type of justice is the aim for both his protagonist in this novel and for human letters in general. He defends his new creative prose genre by defining it as the place of not only poetic, but also real justice. Now, debates about types of justice were prominent throughout Europe in the 16th century. Jurists argued how or if to incorporate Emperor Justinian's legal texts into their own statutes, laws, and customs. Alciato's arguments for contextualizing those laws of late antiquity were part of this movement. The two main approaches were the French Moscalicus method, which rejected the old laws as historical only in all practical senses, and the Italian Mositalicus, which accepted them as fully in force. Spanish legal scholars at the University of Salamanca sought a middle ground. And although they never named or formalized their method, in Don Quixote and Sancho Panza, Cervantes embodies that Mos Hispanicus with two characters who debate contemporary, old, and new means to better legal practices. 
while Don Quixote seeks justice, Sancho always surprises us with his knowledge of the particulars of legal procedure. Cervantes' success with this fictional Mos Hispanicus led the founding fathers of the United States a full century and a half later to use imagery from Don Quixote as their model for writing a constitution and creating democratic structures. They describe themselves in their letters as battling windmills, and they speak admiringly of Sancho Panza's constitutions. One episode from the novel exemplifies Cervantes' prowess with this embedding of very pointed legal commentary into a very entertaining text. Don Quixote's motto, expressed repeatedly throughout the novel, is to undo wrongs, torts, or grievances, desfacer tuertos o agravios. However, in one and in only one episode, Cervantes changes the wording of this goal to undo forcings, desfacer fuerzas. For centuries, critical editions glossed this changed phrase in the episode of the galley slaves as merely synonymic. However, if we follow and explore that lexical clue of the one-word change in motto, that big red flashing instance of elocutio, we find an inner buried message, a sabrosa inventio, critical of the king and of combative legal procedures between state and ecclesiastical judges. It's chapter 22 of the first part of the novel. Don Quixote and Sancho Panza are on the road when they see coming toward them a group of chained men. Don Quixote asks Sancho what he makes of the sight, and Sancho responds, this is a chain of galley slaves, persons forced by the king. Don Quixote is incredulous. What do you mean, persons forced? How is it possible that the king makes force against any person? They continue to bandy about the phrase, by force. Then Don Quixote clarifies, not of their will, and he declares, herein lies the realization of the duties of my profession, to undo forcings. By the time he says that, Cervantes has used the word force or forced six times within as many lines of dialogue. This elocutio, the word fuerza in the changed wording of Don Quixote's goal, from undo wrongs to undo forcings, signals the author's commentary on a contentious legal process regarding the refusal of ecclesiastical courts to grant appeals. José Antonio Maraval reviewed three centuries of disputes between state and ecclesiastical jurisdictions, and he pointed out that only in the 16th century did the state begin to prevail in these matters, albeit with much continued resistance. Early in that century, Charles V and his mother Juana attempted to control these judicial actions by instituting a legal procedure called Via de Fuerza, or Way of Force, which allowed them to intervene, and I'll quote from their law. In such cases, on the basis of both law and immemorial custom, it is our royal duty to lift the forcings that ecclesiastical judges and other persons make in the cases they hear, when they do not allow appeals. A series of laws in Philip II's mid-century Recopilación de Leyes includes this as the first, and Philip II follows Charles V and Juana to conclude that the king's role is to undo such forcings. Covarrubias even includes the process via de fuerza under the definition of force in the 1611 Tesoro. 
Ergo, Don Quixote is right to be astonished. The king should not be making force against one of his subjects. To the contrary, his role is to undo such forcings by granting appeals. And that is precisely what Cervantes' protagonist does in an episode replete with mixtifori language. Sometimes the crimes are sins, some of the punishments are Hail Marys, there are biblical references, and corruption in the legal system is highlighted with complaints about bribes and a general lack of fairness. Don Quixote takes on the role that the king, since time immemorial, was duty-bound to play— he who undoes the forcings imposed by ecclesiastical courts when they deny appeals. The topic, the full structure, and all the language of the episode support the reading of it as subversive commentary on via de fuerza, denials of appeals. The protagonist lifts the force, grants the appeals, and frees the galley slaves. We all know, of course, what happens next. Chaos, with the paladin of justice himself attacked. Now, this episode's judicial messaging would have resonated for readers of Cervantes' day who were accustomed to announcements of new laws and pragmatics in town squares on market days with bells and whistles to attract attention. For readers, court filings in the late 16th century were the only writings that were never censored. Even religious publications had to pass under the censor's eyes, but not legal court cases of necessity given their essence. Certain via de fuerza cases were published as they were filed in the courts, and they circulated freely. The court censor, who reviewed the first part of the Quixote prior to its publication, Antonio de Herrera y Tordesillas, prepared a 179-page report on one of these processes. Mediated by Philip II, this dispute involved a wheat harvest on church properties, and the charges expanded to include allegations of illicit imposition of fees by the church on persons who wished to stage dances or theatrical productions. This suborning of funds was backed by threats of excommunication for violators. Cervantes' life experience provides a precise parallel. He requisitioned wheat from the church on behalf of the crown in southern Spain. And he was not only excommunicated, but also imprisoned twice for those actions. One can only imagine that he was denied an appeal. Two dozen copies of Herreritor de Sillas' report can be found today in libraries around the world. And the Biblioteca Colombina in Seville holds a number of documents on other Villa de Fuerza cases published at the time. So in sum, Cervantes seeds the clue to the galley slave episode's sub rosa reading in one word. Then he exploits that lexical lens to construct a revealing, but also highly entertaining, narrative. A second example of an embedded message uncovered through a philological treasure hunt is found in the Colloquio de los Perros, the last story of Cervantes' novelas ejemplares. Here, the author executes a brilliant, veiled commentary on a specific Jesuit confessional practice. Again, particular lexical details, but in this case quite a few of them, signal the concealed message. The first hint is the seemingly offhand mention of a Jesuit school attended by the son of one character in the novella. Once more, other details of elocutio and dispositio in the story confirm intention behind this embedded inventio. 
For example, the title, Colloquio, the narrative, structure, and theme, the stress placed on the act of murmuring or gossiping, and the use of two dogs as interlocutors. In Cervantes' day, these details had a resonance that went beyond literary models and touched particularly on a specific religious praxis of the Jesuits called conspectus, or examination of conscience. The company, as the Society of Jesus was known, was formally founded with just 10 members in 1540. But by 1599, it would grow to over 8,000. When Cervantes was six years old, his hometown of Alcalá de Henares became the site for the first Jesuit building dedicated specifically to the practice of Ignatius's spiritual exercises. They were advertised, and documentation shows a waiting list of 20 men at a time for the building at Alcalá. When the company presented a public lecture, members would draw attention to the event by parading through the streets with children ringing bells and singing the catechism. Some sectors of Spanish society opposed the company as a polemical theatrical newcomer. Alfredo Álvarez Guerra has written a wonderful biography of Cervantes' teacher in Madrid, Juan López de Hoyos, that includes documentation of his attempts to impede the founding of a Jesuit colegio in that city. It would have been in direct competition with his own school. The argument engendered public commentary, and as a pupil of López de Hoyos during those same years, Cervantes would have been aware of the polemic. In Italy, shortly after that, Cervantes served as a steward or chamberlain in the house of Julio Acquaviva, brother of one Jesuit, Rodolfo, and nephew of another, Claudio. By 1581, Claudio Acquaviva would be elected superior general of the company. Now, given that public-facing theatricality and those personal connections, it would have been hard for Cervantes to be unaware of Jesuit practices, and in the Colloquio de los Perros, he confirms engaged knowledge of them. In the preceding story of the collection, a soldier being cured of syphilis at the Hospital of the Resurrection in Madrid catches up on news with a friend. He relates a conversation overheard through the hospital window as he was in the final throes of the cure. He identifies the speakers as two dogs named Scipion and Berganza. Berganza narrates the story of his life, while Scipion offers both critical and supportive commentary. This dialogue format had multiple antecedents in literary terms, all known to and practiced by Spanish writers during the 16th century. Cervantes' Colloquio has most frequently been read in relation to that format, but always with caveats, as its subject matter, along with the quality and quantity of specific interventions, problematize that interpretive model. Those very difficulties, however, become parallels when we look to the model of spiritual conversation and catechesis, which was, in the 16th century, a particular practice of Ignatius and the Jesuits. The company called its proselytizing tactics fishing for people to confess, and those efforts were quite successful. In the words of one early Jesuit, in five days there were once close to 400 of these confessions. The practice was mandated in the Jesuit constitutions as the first step for one who wished to enter the company. In a conversation with an existing member, the postulant would confess his life trajectory up to that point of entry. This is the model that unequivocally matches that of Cervantes' two dogs. Berganza 
makes his examination of conscience because he wishes to emulate Scipion's life of good works, and Scipion is Berganza's temporal coadjutor. The Jesuits mandated specific roles for each party in such a confession, and the two dogs comply in all respects. The postulant had to provide name, age, place of birth, and its nature, legitimate or not. He had to identify Christian and or heretical ancestors, along with names and professions of parents and siblings. He would be asked about trade skills, literacy, ethical proclivities, general mode of conduct from a young age onward, the health of his conscience, and his intellectual sociability, along with his suitability for good conversation. He was questioned about his studies, specific discipline, authors, and doctrines, the length of study, natural or willful inclination towards it, prowess in Latin, agility of memory, and depth of understanding. Cervantes Berganza begins with this last, his memory, understanding, and inclination for study. He speaks of the natural instincts of dogs, of their understanding and capacity for discourse. He quotes common remarks about their strong memories, and he personalizes this. Quote, From the moment I was old enough to gnaw on a bone, I wanted to speak in order to say the things retained in my memory. Throughout the story, Berganza emphasizes these factors, saying, for example, let me philosophize a bit here and tell you what I remember in order that my history may be complete. He specifically notes that learning and reviewing Latin lessons in his memory improved his understanding. Berganza includes all details required by the Jesuits for the conspectus. He was born in Seville to parents of known heritage who worked in the city's slaughterhouse. He had a series of jobs in which, from the start, he demonstrated enough natural inclination so as to be an eagle in results. He studied at the Jesuit college where he learned Latin, and he also provides details on other readings, the pastoral novels read aloud by the girlfriend of one of his owners. In perfect conformance with the Jesuit norms for the examination, Berganza reveals the workings of his own conscience from an early age, stressing his perceptions of and judgments on the misdeeds of others, such as butchers who will just as easily kill a man as a cow, and shepherds who act more like wolves than protectors. He confesses to his own failings in accepting bribes and in working for miscreants, including a witch whose behavior shocked him into a plea to the heavens for relief. In a direct parallel to the life of Ignatius of Loyola, who was seriously wounded in battle and then converted, Berganza relates his final experience prior to his own conversion. As a performing dog in a theater, he suffered a nearly mortal wound, and that brought about his change of heart. Repenting and recovering, he observed Scipion's service to hospital patients and decided to follow in his footsteps. And this detail provides yet another parallel to Jesuit practices. From the start, such service in hospitals was one of the company's predilective activities. Berganza's interlocutor, Scipion, also perfectly conforms to the prescribed Jesuit coadjutor role. According to Ignatius, he should speak infrequently and only when necessary. His goal should be to help the postulant recognize and amend his greatest moral defect. In Berganza's case, this is murmuring or gossiping, another big red elocutio flag by Cervantes as the Jesuits 
prided themselves on avoiding it at all costs. In the constitutions, in their letters, and in their shared advice to each other, they consistently tout their avoidance of gossip, murmuración. And Cervantes incorporates references to that particular vice throughout the novella. Scipion counsels against it. Watch your tongue. Berganza fears it. I don't wish to be taken for a gossip. Then Scipion allows just a bit. I will let you gossip a little, but only if your manner and presentation is lighthearted. Berganza begins to catch himself as he falls into the act, and Scipion interjects to praise this newly found self-restraint. You are doing well, Berganza, in following my advice. Both dogs stress the need to judge the intention of a gossiper, and tellingly, Cervantes' fullest exploration of the topic takes place during the section of the story dedicated to the merchant of Seville, who, due to ambition, another big topical concern of the Jesuits, sent his children, along with Berganza, to the Jesuit school. As he speaks of the merchant, Berganza complains of the difficulty in sustaining a conversation for two hours without any gossip. Quote, Animal that I am, words stick to my tongue, all of them malicious and gossipy. We inherit this evil from our parents, and we drink it in at our mother's breast. Scipion responds to this with the paradoxically ironic, let's not gossip from here on. But then he adds, now tell me about the sons of the merchant and the Jesuit colegio. The two dogs speak of biting their tongues to avoid gossip, as they correlate gossiping to philosophizing and to preaching, two key activities of the Jesuits. At one point, Scipion accuses Berganza of being a hypocrite for his broken promise on gossiping, and once more, the lexical specificity is telling. The word hypocrite was used early on to insult Ignatius and his followers, with even the word Jesuit taking on a pejorative meaning of religious hypocrite. In sum, Cervantes dramatizes a Jesuit-style examination and confession of conscience with praise for the company's educational practices, accompanied by a canine study of the traits most shunned by its members, ambition, gossip, and hypocrisy. Use of the word colloquy in the title confirms the author's intent, as that word was also part of everyday practice of the Jesuit spiritual exercises, stipulated to begin with a prayer, followed by two or three precepts, some points to consider, then a colloquy to close. Company members stressed the importance of these colloquies and praised those who excelled at them. Supposedly, the colloquies of Jesuit co-founder Peter Faber were powerful enough to draw water from a stone. Cervantes' colloquio has had a similarly intense impact on readers. One final point on the use of dogs for this story. Although Spain already had a long history of groups insulting each other as dogs— during the second half of the 16th century, the epithet became common throughout Europe for the Jesuits, apparently beginning with Peter Canisius, whose last name held the root word can or dog. The Jesuits themselves began to appropriate the epithet, and one early Jesuit writer referencing the biblical Isaias described his companion Jesuits as canes muti, or mute dogs. Cervantes gave the mute dogs speech, along with a lot to say about life, conscience, and conversion. 
These parallels to contemporaneous Jesuit practices would have been impossible for his early public to miss, and in this case, the lexical clues the author scatters throughout the story are multiple and very direct. So, we've seen Cervantes' fictional adaptation of the good letters of law and of the human letters of confessional practice. I want to close with a brief example of his novelistic take on Neoplatonic philosophy and the arts, as found in the Quixote's episode with Don Diego de Miranda, the Knight of the Green Cloak. The pointed elocutio in this case is again just one word. The author uses essences for sciences. For over a century, modern editors of the text have misread that word and for the most part decided to change it as an errata. Far from being that, the word leads us to Cervantes' own perspective on the place of creative letters in the world of arts and sciences. With this use of essences, Cervantes remits to the popular Neoplatonic philosophy of his day and to a very specific text from its promulgation, the commentary on Plato's Republic written by Italian philosopher and theologian Marsilio Ficino at the end of the 15th century. Echoes of that same text can be found in other aspects of Cervantes' masterpiece, including Don Quixote's reference to the need for good laws in a republic, his equating of distributive justice and equity, and his references to ancient legislators. In a broader sense, we can, and I have, read protagonist Don Quixote as the ideal defender of Spain's Siete Partidas, but he is also an ironic early modern illustration of Plato's wise guardian for a republic. Like that model, he combines active and intellectual lives, or arms and letters, to best serve his republic. In the same books six and seven of the Republic that contain the recommendation for such guardians, Plato privileges dialectic as the apex of all sciences, the primary route to the ultimate good. He insists that all other sciences are in service to this one, and in his commentary on the text, Ficino agrees, putting dialectic in the company of metaphysics or theology, and following Plato to say that dialectic is more esteemed than the other sciences. It is served by and it serves them. For both Plato and Ficino, dialectic is the optimum higher-order intellectual activity, unique in its principles and functioning. Ficino adds to that, adapting the reasoning of St. Thomas of Aquinas to say that essence can be the object of intellectual thought. Then going further than Aquinas, Ficino proposes that essence is even more than an ideal. It exists, including as principle and cause. Essence is both existence and agent, he says. Then he adds, in terms of intellect, Science means the essence acquired by the dialectician, and true knowledge follows this essence. Ficino's message here is that he who studies dialectic acquires essence, which is synonymous with science and leads to true knowledge. So, what does Cervantes do with that? In a conversation about arms and letters with Don Diego de Miranda, Don Quixote directly follows Ficino to use essences for sciences, but he replaces dialectic with poetry. 
The protagonist tells us that, quote, poetry is served by all the other sciences. She must serve herself of them, and they must all find their authority in her. She is of such an alchemical mix that he who knows how to treat her will turn her into the purest gold. As with dialectic for Plato and Ficino, Cervantes' one most important essence serves and is served by all others. It also leads to the ultimate good, or as Cervantes calls it, the purest gold. The key difference is that for Cervantes, poetry has replaced dialectic. Having learned the grammar of Latin and Greek, the poet son of Don Diego has made it through the first rung of the essences that will lead him to the mountain peak of human letters, his chosen career in the practice of poetry. This substitution of poetry for dialectic is a remarkable clue to Cervantes' thinking on creative letters. As the art of dispute that aims to discern truth and differentiate it from falsehood, dialectic implies two or more interlocutors. That is the model for Scipione and Berganza in the Colloquio and for Don Quixote and Sancho in the Quixote. But here, Cervantes opts for the pinnacle of human endeavor as poetry, the art of a single voice. Advancing and eclipsing the invention versus mimesis debates of his day, Cervantes privileges the voice of one human artist, refracting multiple perspectives through his own. This is constitutive rather than mimetic art, truth as seen through and in that one human lens. Further, this truth comes from, rather than being revealed to, the human artist. Art is made and judged with terrestrial rather than celestial criteria. This innovative proposal makes acquisition of the essences the key to a literary theurgy realized in human letters. Such secular celebration of the power of one creative voice will not be commonplace until the period of Romanticism two centuries later. And we have to note that when Cervantes advocates for the primacy of poetry in the Quixote, he does so in prose. His contemporary, Lope de Vega, categorically denies the importance of metrics in regard to the classification poetry. I'll quote Lope, because this structuring with feet and number are to the poetic art much like beauty in youth or festive dress to a well-proportioned body. The ornament of harmony is there accidentally, but not substantially. For Lope, poetry is substantially words, not metrics. In Cervantes' poetry in prose, the feet and numbers of metered verse are replaced with the intricate structural cohesion of elocutio in the service of signaling inventio and the substantial harmony found in dispositio. The lexical tropism is prosaic. Structure is internal and definitely not accidental. Cervantes uses precise lexical signs to telegraph complex rhetorical configurations containing layers of, as Baltasar Gracian would say, artistically splendid truths and concepts. Each and every word in a Cervantine text can be a portal to multiple messages, and study of these lexical ciphers opens up the labyrinthian complexity of the author's ingenious wit, his imaginative structural perspectivism that spearheaded the move from early modern to modern. Another Renaissance Spaniard, Duarte de San Juan, identified two types of genius or ingenio in human letters. 
the caprine or goat-like, free thinkers leaping and moving beyond common opinion. They contrast with the ovine, sheep-like, timid and fearful, who never dare. Cervantes' constitutive refraction of reality in human letters is caprine excellence, and it is in consonance with developments in pictorial arts of the day, think Velázquez and Las Meninas, a multi-layered perspectivism that appropriates reality to refashion it through one artistic lens, one man's imagination. This is, of course, the same model used to characterize protagonist Don Quixote, who rewrites life and the books of knight errantry as he sees them. On a broader scale, Cervantes does just that as a creative author, appropriating and transforming the good and human letters and practices of his day. For Aristotle, poetry is not about what happened. But for Cervantes, poetry and prose is just that, life, but enriched and reconfigured through a creative lens. The author dares us to find those lexical clues that will, in turn, enrich our reading of his writings, and that also provide keen insight into his creative process, Cervantes' own poetic essence. Thank you for joining us on Major Figures in Spanish Culture. In our next episode, we will talk about Antonio Machado, one of the greatest 20th century poets and one of the leading figures of the Spanish literary movement known as Generation of 1898, with the help of Nuria Margado, Associate Professor of Contemporary Spanish Literature at the College of Staten Island and the Graduate Center, City University of New York. Thank you.